Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Would you please uh, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 22, and let's uh, stand together in honor and recognition of the fact that we are reading the Holy Word of God. Our sermon text is Deuteronomy 22, beginning at verse 13 and proceeding to verse 21. Deuteronomy 22, beginning at verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the, of the city at the gate. Uh, and the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct saying, I found your, water, your, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and punish him. And they shall fine him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife and he cannot divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, the evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman. Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Let's pray. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we were uh, contemplating the severity of your justice and of your vengeance. And Father, we also have been contemplating the severity of your grace and your goodness. And Lord, in the context of this passage, we pray that we would even uh, more fully understand uh, that grace and goodness and how uh, one can come to, to rest in that grace and goodness. And Lord, we pray that we would de derive from this passage the principles that apply not just to this specific case that is uh, delineated here, but that uh, the principles that are applicable in this case uh, also have application to other areas in life. And we pray that you'd give us the wisdom to know uh, where to apply those principles and how to apply them and, and to what extent. And so, Lord, we, we do uh, desire to, to be led and instructed by you and your revelation. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would illuminate this portion of your revelation in order that we may receive that, that guidance and that instruction. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And please be seated. I want to begin with a quick review of what we learned last Sunday when we were looking at Numbers chapter 30. Numbers 30 describes the authority God gives to husbands and fathers. And when a wife or daughter make a vow or bind themselves by some agreement, the husband or father can overrule that vow. 
In God's wise design of the family, he gave the husband and father the authority to say to his wife or his daughter, no, the thing that you committed yourself is not good. I'm going to make that commitment void. And Numbers, uh, verse, and in Numbers 30, verse 50, uh, f- verse 5, verse 8, and verse 12, tell us that when a husband or father does this, the Lord releases the wife and daughter from her vow. So this is not just the husband who is releasing his wife or daughter from their vow, it's the Lord. The Lord releases them through the agency of the husband and father. Now we recognize in this that God has given a significant amount of authority to husbands and fathers. And we also recognize that this authority comes with a lot of responsibility. Husbands and fathers have a moral responsibility to exercise the authority God gave to them in a righteous manner. In other words, they need to be good students of the Bible. They need to know what the Lord says about being a godly husband and what the Lord says about being a godly father. Headship must never be used as a weapon by husbands and fathers to achieve their own selfish goals. The Lord gave headship to man not so he can oppress his wife or daughter, but that he can protect his wife and daughter. And when a father or husband is living in submission to his head, which is Christ, then that man will serve as the earthly agent the Lord uses to provide loving protection and security for the wife and the daughter. So that's a quick review of what we saw last Sunday. Now the question naturally arises from this about how far a man's headship authority extends. Uh, What's explicit from Numbers 30 is that the husband's and father's authority uh, extends over the vows and agreements their wife and daughter make. But what about other areas of life? Does the Lord intend for husbands and fathers to exercise their headship authority in other areas of life? Or is it just limited to wives and daughters making vows? Well, this is where our sermon text from Deuteronomy 22 is helpful. This passage describes the father's headship as well, but in regards to his daughter's romantic relationships. Or a better way of putting it is that our sermon text describes the substantial responsibility the Lord has given to fathers to protect their daughter's purity. I don't think I need to convince you that this is one of the most neglected aspects of headship today. Last Sunday, we considered how many husbands and fathers abdicate their headship because of ignorance, laziness, and cowardice. And either they don't know what God requires of them, or they're too lazy to do what God requires of them, or they don't have the courage to persevere through some of the more difficult challenges when exercising their headship. Well, this is... Uh, even more the case when it comes to fathers exercising headship over their daughter's romantic relationships. For whatever reasons, many Christian fathers believe they have headship over all the other aspects of their daughter's upbringing, but not her romantic relationships. They believe they can decide how their daughter will be educated They insist she attends church. They uh, make 
her participate in family devotions. They can require her to sit at the dinner table when everybody else is sitting at the dinner table. But then she turns a certain age and fathers, and she wants to begin dating and fathers, Christian fathers say, that falls out of my authority. That's beyond, outside of my authority. She gets to make her own decisions in that area of life. Or the Christian father says to his daughter, you can only date Christian men because the Bible says you cannot be unequally yoked. And then he pats himself on the back thinking he's done, faithfully fulfilled his fatherly duty to his daughter. Our sermon text demonstrates that a father's headship responsibilities go well beyond telling his daughter that she can only date Christian men. Every father has the responsibility of protecting his daughter's purity. He protects his daughter's purity from selfish men who will be pursuing her for their own selfish gratification, their own sinful gratification, and he protects his daughter from her pursuing men for her own sinful gratification. Now this second part is not always as obvious to fathers as the first part is. Every father understands that the world is filled with unsavory men who are on the lookout for women they can exploit for their own selfish and sinful gratification. But not every father understands that his daughter might have some unsavory inclinations of her own. Some young women have a sinful desire to be desired. Some young women have a sinful desire to be desired. They want men to lust after them. It flatters them to know that a man is lusting after them. They like the attention they receive when men are lusting after them. And this sinful desire to be desired can be an indication of a problem that's much deeper than the daughter realizes. And sadly, it's an, it can be an indication of a problem that's much deeper than the father probably realizes as well. Well, we can identify many reasons why a young woman would sinfully desire to be desired. Uh, the most likely reason is that she doesn't have a father who's exercising loving and responsible headship over her. Let me explain. In God's wise design of the family, one of the reasons fathers are given headship over their daughters is to protect their daughters. Uh, when a father does a good job of protecting his daughter, she's going to be secure. Uh, she's going to know that her dad loves her, uh, that he's looking out for her, that he wants her to prosper in life. Uh, she's going to trust him. She's going to be comforted in knowing that he is looking out for her. And she's gonna know that if she's ever in a difficult or dangerous situation, her father will be her protector. He'll do whatever is in his power to protect her from harm. But a young woman who does not experience this type of loving protection from her father will often begin looking for security elsewhere. This is because the Lord created women to thrive under godly male headship. And let me repeat that, because this is the exact opposite of what the world is telling us today. The Lord created women to thrive under godly male headship. 
Women don't thrive under all male headship, only godly male headship. Uh, When a husband or father is leading his wife and daughter in the way that God instructed him to lead, the wife and daughter will thrive because that is the environment God designed for women to thrive in. But when a father is not exercising godly headship, his daughter is going to have an, an innate sense that something important is missing from her life. She's going to sense her vulnerability. She's going to feel exposed to the world. And probably without really understanding what she's doing, she will begin looking for that security in other men. And of course, this is a recipe for disaster because the world is filled with unsavory men who are eager to give attention to the daughter, only the attention they will give her is a selfish and sinful form of, of, of attention. It's not the kind of attention she needs. It's not the kind of attention that puts her best interests first. It's not the kind of attention that seeks to protect her and prosper her. But that's what she's seeking. She's seeking the headship her father is not providing. And because she's young and inexperienced in the world, she naively believes that the man who's presently showing interest in her, giving her attention, is going to be the man who provides the security that she's searching for. And sometimes, by the grace of God, that's exactly what happens. God brings a righteous man into that daughter's life and he provides a loving and protective headship that her soul has been craving. Or sometimes God brings an unsavory man into the daughter's life. The unsavory man has only selfish and sinful intentions with the girl, but the Lord regenerates that man's heart and he ends up being an exemplary husband to her. But far too often... The daughter ends up in a relationship with an unsavory man who uses her for his own selfish and sinful reasons and then discards her as he moves on to take advantage of another unprotected daughter. Every father needs to protect his daughter from selfish men who will pursue her for their own sinful gratification. But that's not all. Every father also needs to protect his daughter from her pursuing men for her own sinful gratification. And this is the other side of the coin that I've been calling the sinful desire to be desired. A father needs to be mindful that his daughter might be lusting in her heart for physical intimacy. I say lusting in her heart because this points to sinful forms of desiring intimacy. Sinful forms of desiring intimacy. There is a righteous desire for intimacy. A father need not be concerned that his daughter has a righteous desire for intimacy because that's how God created her. So the father needs to be discerning in this matter. He needs wisdom in this matter. He needs to maintain a righteous desire for intimacy within his daughter's heart, but not stir up or awaken love before it's time. I say the father needs, to dis- needs discernment because if love is stirred up or awakened too early in his daughter's heart, then that can lead to lust. 
And when lust is growing in her heart, she'll soon begin acting upon her sinful impulses. And once again, the world is filled with unsavory men who are quick to assist her in acting upon her sinful impulses. Our sermon text describes a situation that develops when an unmarried woman acts upon her sinful impulses. It describes a man who takes a wife in marriage and then discovers that she's not a virgin. According to verse 15, this charge is made at the city gate, which in those days was where the civil and criminal court cases were held. So the husband is making a public charge against his wife. He's charging her with shameful conduct prior to him marrying her. And what I want you to notice from verse 15 is who the Lord says needs to come to defend the young woman. It's her father. He's the one who's summoned to the city gate. Now, why is this? She's a married woman. Her uh, the, the, the father's headship was transferred to the husband when the couple got married. So what role does the father have in this situation? Shouldn't the wife be defending herself? Why does her father need to defend her? It's because when the father gave his daughter to be married, he represented her to be a virgin. When the husband took the daughter to be his wife, he thought that he was marrying a virgin. The reason the father is called to make a defense concerning his daughter is because he's the man who was responsible for protecting his daughter's purity. Do you see that in our text? The father is the person who's responsible for protecting his daughter's purity. So when the daughter's purity is called into question, God's judicial system looks to the father and says, explain what's going on here. Because she was under your headship. She was under your responsibility. So explain. The situation described in our sermon text is a case of misrepresentation, or we can say it's a case of fraud. Had the father told the man who wanted to marry his daughter that she was not a virgin, and the man still chose to marry her, then there's no fraud involved. This whole situation doesn't apply. The husband cannot bring any charges against the wife because he understood the nature of her purity before he married her. But in cases where the daughter's purity was misrepresented, then the husband has a valid complaint. And when the elders of the city determine that the husband has indeed been frauded in this manner, the punishment was for the daughter to be stoned to death. Verse 21 says, she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. So the elders of the city need to put away the evil from among them. She was stoned to death. You might ask why the father was not punished since he's the one who misrepresented his daughter's purity when he gave her to be married. Well, a careful reading of our sermon text leads us to the conclusion that the father did not actually know that his daughter was not a virgin when he gave her to be married. Had he known, the father would have never 
represented his daughter to be something that she wasn't because her husband would have surely discovered the truth once they were married. And such a, such a father would essentially be signing his daughter's death warrant. No loving father would, would do that. So the situation described here in our sermon text is a daughter who deceived her father. And when her deception was discovered, she was executed. But notice where she was executed. It wasn't at the city gate where executions normally took place. Verse 21 explains that the young woman was to be brought to the door of her father's house. And the men of the city would stone her to death at the door of her father's house. Why there? Because her deception and fraud happened under her father's headship. In other words, the location of her execution was an indictment that this father was somehow remiss in his responsibilities to protect his daughter's purity. Maybe he abdicated his protective headship and his daughter was searching for somebody else to fill that void in her heart. Or maybe she was lusting for intimacy and the father didn't recognize this about his daughter so he never led her to maintain a righteous desire for intimacy. Or maybe some other circumstance contributed to his daughter's purity being given away without her father's father's knowledge. Um, Whatever the case, the father didn't know his daughter's situation. And when it became apparent that she had deceived him while living in his house, the execution was done at his front door. Now, brothers and sisters, this passage provides a decisive answer to the question of whether a father's headship extends over his daughter's romantic relationships. The answer is an emphatic yes. If modern-day Christians would only change our perspective on this matter, then I believe we would see a reformation in the process we use to establish marriages. I say reformation and not revolution because the process we use to establish marriages doesn't need to be reimagined or reinvented, but restored. We need to restore the biblical principles to the way we establish marriages. And one of the best principles to begin with is the one that we see here in our sermon text. When two young people are interested in a relationship that might lead to marriage, the young man needs to ask permission from the young woman's father before he can begin making advances. So the young man needs to go to her father and ask, may I court your daughter? Now understand that when I use the word court or courtship in this sermon, I'm using the words according to their older definition. I'm only intending to use these words in reference to this process that people use to go from being single to being married. Uh, Courtship and courting have been used more recently to describe very specific ways in which a young man and young woman are permitted to get to know each other and interact with each other. And that's all fine, but please understand that I'm not advocating any of the modern courtship models when I'm speaking about courting in the context of this sermon. I'm simply using the word to describe the process a man goes through when taking a wife. 
When a young man is interested in pursuing a young woman, thinking that she might be a good candidate as a future wife, he needs to go through her father and ask permission to court her. And the father has the authority to say yes, no, or maybe later. If the father says no, or maybe later, then the young man needs to stop pursuing the young woman. Uh, He needs to respect that her father has not given him permission to court her, so he needs to back off. And if the father says yes, then it would be very helpful for the father to clearly delineate what he is and is not authorizing the young man to do. In other words, what are the boundaries the father is establishing to protect his daughter? Can they show physical affection to each other? Can they hug each other? Can they hold hands? Can they kiss? Are there any restrictions on the questions the young man is able to ask the daughter? How personal can those questions be? Can he ask her about her faith? Can he uh, ask her about her struggles with sin? Can he ask her about previous relationships she may have been in? Can he ask her about her purity? Can he ask her thoughts on how many children she wants to have when she gets married? Are there any restrictions a father wants to place upon the statements the young man makes to his daughter? Can he tell her that he loves her? Can he tell her that he desires to marry her? Can he tell her that he knows what God's will is for them? It's to be married by April, move to Montana, and have 12 children in the next 12 years. Are there any restrictions upon the private time the couple can spend together? Can they go places without any friends or family members being with them? Can they go to the movies? Can they drive in the car together? Can they go on vacations together? Can they sleep over at each other's house? What kind of accountability does a father require of the young man? Will he be required to, give, to have regular conversations with the father as the courtship progresses? Will these, will these conversations become more intense? Does he give his consent for the father to speak with his pastor, learning about his own commitment to Christ? Is he willing to share his financial status with the father? Is he willing to disclose his sin struggles to the girl's father. These are just a few of the examples, the type of things that the father of the young woman might choose to establish. They're not requirements, they're wisdom matters. Uh, the, The father of the young lady might choose to establish some of these in one situation and not the other situation. It's a wisdom judgment that he makes based upon what he knows about his daughter and the young man who's pursuing her. And what the young man needs to recognize is that it's the father's prerogative to establish such things. He can set up whatever parameters he thinks are appropriate for protecting his daughter and the young man needs to respect them. If the young man thinks the father is being unreasonable, then he can share that concern with the father. He can go to the father and they can discuss it like men. What the young man 
should not do is lead the father to believe that he will respect the boundaries, but then secretly violate them when the father is not around. Nor should the young man say to the daughter, I don't agree with the boundaries that your dad set, so you need to go and you need to tell him that he's being too strict. No, if the young man doesn't agree, then he needs to be the one who goes and has that discussion with the father. If he's man enough to be pursuing a wife, then he needs to be man enough to share his concerns with the father. If he thinks he's ready to assume the headship of a family, then he needs to demonstrate that by going and doing the difficult thing of talking to the father. The next major development in the relationship is where the young man asks the second question. Sir, may I marry your daughter? May I marry your daughter? And this is a much different question than may I court your daughter? When a father gives permission to court his daughter, he's not giving permission to marry the daughter, which means if the courtship is progressing well and everything seems to be going together, uh, coming together for this couple, the young man should not begin talking about marriage with the young woman until he has received permission from the father to do that. Why? Because the father is, has headship over his daughter. Nobody should begin making lifelong plans with a man's daughter until he has received permission from her father. To begin discussing marriage without having received permission is to disrespect the father's headship. Moreover, it's putting the daughter in a vulnerable spot. Suppose a young man believes that uh, she's the right girl for him to marry. He's got it all figured out. She's the right girl for him to marry. And so he begins communicating this to her, ramping up the intensity of their relationship. If they start talking about when would be a good time to be married, who will be at the wedding, where they'll go for the honeymoon, what kind of dog they're gonna get and how they're gonna have a white picket fence in the front yard, this is going to knit her heart to his in a very intense manner. But what happens if the father doesn't agree that marriage is the next step? What happens if the father is learning things about the young man that's making him question the future of this courtship? And what happens if the father decides the courtship needs to be called off? Brothers and sisters, Remember that headship is for the daughter's protection. The father is not merely protecting his daughter's purity, he's also protecting her heart. He doesn't, he doesn't want her heart to become too deeply attached to this young man too soon because that will make it very difficult for her if the courtship needs to be paused or if the courtship needs to be called off. The young man who proceeds to talk about marriage before asking the father's permission uh, is undermining the protection the father is trying to provide for his daughter. The father is trying to regulate the speed of the courtship as it's progressing and so that the cart does not get in front of the horse. The young man is unwittingly perhaps, or even knowingly, working in opposition to the father by putting the cart in front of the horse. Now we need to understand that the question to court the daughter is radically different than the question to marry the daughter. 
Permission to court is permission to begin vetting one another. It's permission to have conversations that would be inappropriate outside of a courtship. But it's not permission to begin making marriage plans. That this requires a father's permission, which means a young man needs to ask him for that permission. So the first question is, can I court your daughter? The second question is, can I marry your daughter? And here's another appropriate point of application. When the father gives his permission for the couple to become engaged, in other words, he he answers the question, yes, you can marry my daughter. The father still has 100% headship over his daughter. Even in engagement, the father still has 100% headship over his daughter. And this needs to be stated because a young man might think he could begin exercising headship over his fiancée before they get married. He might think he can start directing her on how she handles her finances. He may want to merge their money into a single joint checking account before they get married. He might think that, it could, uh, that he could tell her what type of job she should take and how many hours she should work each week. If they're going to different churches, he might think he can dictate that she start coming to his church every Sunday or that she drop out of the Bible study at her church and begin attending the Bible study at his church. Now, many of these things might be reasonable preparations for marriage, but that's not the issue here. The issue is headship the daughter remains under her father's headship until she's actually married. So if the young man wants to begin making these kinds of changes in preparation for marriage, he simply needs to ask her father, sir, do you mind if we join our bank accounts together? The wedding is three weeks away, and this would be one less thing that we'll need to attend to if we were to wait until after the honeymoon to join our bank accounts together. And if the father gives us permission, then great. They can go join their bank accounts together. No big problem. Which brings me to the third question that marks a significant development in a courtship. It's the question the officiant of the wedding asks the father of the bride. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And when her father answers, I do, or when he answers, her mother and I, he's not just giving his daughter to this man. He's giving his daughter's headship to this man, which means he's transferring all the authority he has over his daughter to her new husband. He's transferring the responsibility to protect his daughter to her new husband. He's transferring the responsibility to provide for his daughter to her new husband. He's transferring the responsibility to build her up in the faith. He's transferring the responsibility to sanctify her with the word of God. He's transferring the responsibility to nurture her, to counsel her, to encourage her, and to comfort her. I think there are a lot of Christians who don't understand the significance of the father's answer to that question. When he says that he's giving his daughter to be married to this man, he's giving his approval for the establishment of a new family. And by transferring the headship of his daughter to her new husband, he's acknowledging that he no longer has authority over his daughter, which means Not only has a major change developed in 
his daughter's relationship to the young man that she had been courting, he's now her husband. She now submits to him. But a major change has also developed in the father's relationship with the daughter or the daughter's relationship with her father. And a major change has developed in the father's relationship to that young man. Whereas a young man used to have to to defer to the father's headship in matters pertaining to the daughter, now the father needs to defer to the headship of his daughter's new husband. So if he thinks that it would be better for his daughter to drive a Toyota instead of a Ford, he needs to just keep that opinion to himself. He no longer has the authority to impose those things. And if he really thinks it's important for her to drive a Toyota, the father can go talk to the son-in-law about it. He can try to persuade his son-in-law that the daughter should be driving a Toyota. But at the end of the day, the decision is the son-in-law's because he's the person who has headship over the daughter. He's the one God had ordained to have headship over that woman. As I hope you see, brothers and sisters, headship is a big deal. It's essential to our proper understanding of marriage. It's essential for a family to function according to God's design. No doubt this is why our adversary has tried to undermine marriage and family by attacking headship. But as I said earlier, we don't need to reinvent marriage. We don't need to reimagine marriage. We simply need to restore it to its biblical design. And this begins in our own homes. We can complain all day about Hollywood's despicable portrayal of the family, but how is your family portraying itself to the watching world? Husbands, are you sacrificially exercising loving and protective headship over your wife? Wives, are you submitting to your husband in all things? Fathers, are you protecting your daughter's heart and purity? Daughters, are you submitting to the protective authority of your father? Young men, are you honoring the headship of the father of the woman you're pursuing? And father-in-laws, are you respecting the headship of your son-in-law? In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's obvious that our land needs to be healed. Uh, We are witnessing the most depraved contortions of marriage, family, and gender that our country has ever experienced. At no time in the history of our country has there been such insanity as what's going on today. And what does the Lord tell us about how our land can be healed from this insanity? Surprisingly, he does not say that the first step is for feminists and LGBTQ people to repent of their sins. No, he says that his people who are called by his name need to humble ourselves in repentance. We need to pray and seek the Lord's face. We need to turn from our wicked ways, our wicked ways. So if you're a husband or father and you've been neglecting to exercise your headship, then this would be an appropriate time to repent. 
If you're a wife or daughter and you fail to submit to the headship of your husband or father, then this would be an appropriate time to repent. If you're a young son and you're not submitting to your father's headship, then this would be an appropriate time to repent. If you're a young man pursuing a wife and you're not submitting to her father's headship, then this would be an appropriate time to repent. If you're a father-in-law or a mother-in-law and you're not honoring the headship of your son-in-law over your daughter, this would be an appropriate time to repent. And if parts of this sermon have exposed areas in your life where you've failed to exercise righteous headship or failed to submit to righteous, or, or failed to submit to righteous headship or failed in matters of purity, then this can be an especially difficult situation because um, those are matters that you typically cannot go back and do over again. If you failed to exercise righteous headship, if you failed to submit to righteous headship, or if you failed in matters of purity, these are most often things and situations that you cannot go back and do over again. What's done is done. You don't get a second chance at these things. Unbelievers are the most to be pitied in these situations because they have no refuge for their sin. The unbelieving father who realizes too late that he failed to protect his daughter must bear the full weight of regret upon his own shoulders. The unbelieving daughter who acted upon her sinful desire to be desired must bear the full weight of her regret. And it may not be until a man raises his own daughter that he realizes how inappropriately he behaved against the women and fathers of the young women that he pursued when he was young. The unbelieving man has nowhere to go with his regret. There's nothing he can do but bear the shame and guilt upon his own shoulders. But believers in these situations have the Lord's compassionate forgiveness to comfort us in our sorrow. While we cannot go back and redo the things we regret, we do experience the Lord's forgiveness. And the Lord does promise to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. eaten. We have the sure confidence of knowing that our Heavenly Father takes broken things and makes them beautiful. He turns our sorrows into joys. He mends strained relationships. He establishes the penitent on solid ground. He turns a heart of fathers to their daughters and daughters to their fathers. So if parts of the sermon have exposed some of your own regrets, take heart, brothers and sisters, take heart. Take heart in knowing that because of the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of our Lord. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. 
Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.